Well, it was uh, quite a cold week out, out where we live. I think it was cold everywhere, but I looked at my deck thermometer earlier this week, and it said minus 19. And uh, so it was pretty cold uh, where we were, but I was thinking about this sweet note that we got from Minnesota and thinking how glad I am I don't live in Minnesota. Our daughter lives up there, and recently it was minus 40. Minus 40. Uh, that reminds me, um, y- you know it, the winters are cold in Minnesota because the, uh, the license plate, the Minnesota license plates, it says, Minnesota, come for the culture. Stay because your car won't start. So, um, so that's, that's how cold it is in Minnesota. Well, we are, uh, this is our fourth week to be kind of camped out in uh, Acts chapter 2 at the end of the chapter there because that's when the first church that arose after Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved and they began meeting in homes and and doing the things that the New Testament church is called to do, fulfilling the Great Commission. That's where it's described. And so we started this series, we're going through the book of Acts and we're just kind of camped out here for a little while, but we will eventually get on to chapter 3 and and points uh, northward. Uh, But uh, we started this series by uh, sort of asking the question, uh, how far has the church drifted in 2,000 years from its divine design for God's purpose for the church? And we talked about the distinction between mission and vision. I always want to come back to this week after week because it's, it's critical that we understand that every church on planet Earth today in this present church age has one mission. And it's what God's Word says the purpose of the church is. But each local church, like Plum Creek Chapel, has a unique vision and unique ways that, that, that we in our unique situation can further uh, God's mission and further the gospel. And so here at Plum Creek Chapel, we're as we go through the book of Acts, we're kind of thinking and talking and strategizing about ways in which we can more effectively do the Lord's work in our setting. And uh, so last week we had a church meeting and we talked about Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and Fred kind of talked about our Jerusalem and our Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth and we're we're looking at ways that we can really try to make a difference but this morning we come uh, to part four and I've been kind of dealing with a couple of characteristics of the early church the New Testament church in the first century each week today I'm just going to deal with one uh, one uh, characteristic so uh, so far we you see on the screen there on the left side we've talked about baptism community, doctrine, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. And today, we want to talk about uh, reverence. Reverence. Um, It's such an important concept, and as I was kind of connecting the dots and putting scriptures together and and, uh, looking at the biblical concept of fear, uh, I just said we're going to just kind of focus on this one uh, today. Now, you know, a year or so ago here at Plum Creek, I taught through the book of Hebrews. I think we spent 30 some odd weeks on that. And we talked in that series about godly fear. And when we were in chapter 12, we read this, where the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. You know, this 
Hebrews was written some 35 years after the church had been born in Jerusalem. And fearing God still after three decades was a fundamental aspect of the early church. And it should be a fundamental aspect today. Notice that last phrase, our God is a consuming fire. You know, not to be too critical or too negative, but there are a lot of problems in the church at large today in the world. Uh, we've talked about some of them. There's no shortage of ways in which today's church fails to follow the model in Scripture. But as I think about it, probably more than anything else, the church today has lost its sense of fear or reverence for God. In many ways, the church today resembles a social club, a business, a nonprofit organization. Its success is judged based on numbers and money and how popular it is in the community. But that's not the picture the Bible paints of a, of a New Testament church. The New Testament church was born in God's divine design out of necessity, and it exists to fear God in a fallen world. It exists to serve God. It exists to teach others to, to fear Him and to serve Him. But we've lost our sense of, of shame in the church today because we've lost sight of who God is. And when you get away from the Bible and start turning the Sunday morning worship service into more of a production, then you've got the wrong focus. It's not supposed to be a production. You know, obviously in our day and age, technology has become a key part of the worship service of this, even churches, small churches that never really did much with technology because of the whole COVID pandemic ended up doing that. So, you know, you come to Plum Creek, you see the cameras and the microphone and we're, we're live streaming. We have tons more people that join us by live stream than we have even in uh, the auditorium. And that's fine. That's just a, a means to an end. That's about getting the message out. But I hope you understand that here at Plum Creek, it's not about the production. You know, we, we're, we, uh, we pray before the service. We, Jeff and I talk often. We're trying to be sincere and real and just call people to the throne and get people's hearts prepared and build you up in the faith for the next week to come. We share the gospel for people who may come through those doors that don't know uh, the Lord. Uh, and we're not perfect. You know, we sometimes have technical glitches, right? We had one this morning. You know, we sometimes have, you know, issues, but that's because we're just trying to serve the Lord. We're not, we're not running a television studio. And I just feel like in, in some cases, uh, that's what church has become uh, today. You know, we talked previously about doctrine. I mentioned it in the review a second ago. Doctrine, of course, is, is a key characteristic of the church, and that's what uh, should matter most uh, and, and, and part of that is the gospel, because the Bible says the gospel is the power of God to salvation, and, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So that's critical. But, you know, a lot of megachurches just, and again, I don't I want to be one of these preachers that preaches against everything, but it just, as I was thinking about how the early church, coming right out of the day of Pentecost, met together, and Luke describes it with reverence, I thought, I wonder... Is that the missing component in so many churches today? 
I remember uh, a mega church when I was in academics that in Houston that uh, I watched one of their services. Just curious about it. And they had, at the beginning of the message, they had a massive production. I mean, it was like a Universal Studios style production with props and actors and, and, and you know, smoke and just, I mean, it was, you felt like you were at a high quality Broadway play type situation. And the idea was the pastor was introducing his sermon and he had this team that did that for him. But that particular one that I watched was so big and such a big deal that when he got up after they were done and everybody was clapping because it was such a great production, it was only 10 minutes of an introduction, but he got up and he started clapping. And I never forget, he said, you know, I got to thank our production team and, and our production minister, so-and-so who's in charge of this team, you know, they do such a great job each week introducing my sermons and, and they do it, and, and you're not going to believe this, this is him talking, he said, they do it with only a $10,000 a week budget. And I thought, $10,000, how many Bibles will that buy? How many gospel tracts will that, you know, but that's the mentality in that culture, in that context, you've got to keep ratcheting it up because you've got 5,000, 10,000 people out there uh, watching in the audience and that's what they've come to expect. Um, so I don't think we can do a $10,000 budget each, each week, but I give you $10 to yeah. kind of... <laughs> But let's go back to Acts chapter 2 as we continue this summary. It says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The wonder-inspiring miracles that the apostles performed pointed the way to God. It reminded people that there's a powerful God uh, at work. Um, you know, Peter, prior to the official establishment of the church earlier in Acts 2 when he preached his famous gospel message, remember? And the people were convicted, convinced that what he was saying was true, and they wanted to know, how could, what do we do next? He used the same phrase, this idea of miracles, wonders, and signs. He says, God is attested to you by miracles, wonders, and, and signs. And we talked about how the church is supposed to be a continuation of, of Christ's ministry. We looked at the first 11 verses of Acts when we began this series and we talked about that. So I think one of the reasons the early church so naturally and instinctively had this fear, and you see it come up a lot as the church, Luke, the historian, tells us the history of the early church in the book of Acts, is because they were so close in proximity to this powerful move of God and the miracles. You know, if you look through history, in church history, I mean, in the biblical history, each changing of a dispensation, there's an uptick in powerful, mighty, spiritual things. We're going to see that again as we move from the church age into the kingdom age during the tribulation period. And this was a pivotal moment in human history. When the Messiah had come to offer the kingdom to Israel, he was rejected, crowned with thorns instead of a king's crown. So God, in his divine design, this was not an afterthought. This was all part of God's plan all along. Ushered in the mystery of the church age, unforetold in the Old Testament, but clearly described in the New Testament. And as we shifted into the church age, you see a lot of validating signs that God did in and through the, the apostles early on to say, hey, this is legit. This is, this is of God. And so I think in that sense, the early church was 
naturally uh, had this sense of fear. But if you go back to the text, fear came upon every soul. The feeling of awe that God's powerful, miraculous working in their midst inspired uh, was natural. You know, I think that's one reason it's easier for the early church to demonstrate fear than it is for us. We've been separated now for 2,000 years. And frankly, most churches, the apostate church that we read about later in Paul's letter to Timothy, most churches are in that category. You know, the, the mainstream denominational churches that long ago abandoned the authority of God's word, rejected inerrancy, just became a social club. You know, you go in, you... You go through the motions, you do the things that church services do, you have the reading and you have the, you know, whatever it is, um, and then you go home. And it, it's not this sense of, boy, we are here with a mission, with a purpose, and we're here to reflect the ministry of Christ and what we're, we're doing. The early church, especially at this time, remember, historically, Luke's writing this about 30 years after it all happened, but the account that he's telling here happened in 33 AD on the day of Pentecost. And, and then now he's describing the church as it goes on days and weeks later. But many of them had walked and talked with Christ. They had been there with him. Some of them were, were there when he healed the sick or raised the dead or performed other signs and, and wonders. These people that were, were part of the early church, the Jerusalem chapel, we kind of call it, you know, they were there, some of them perhaps, or certainly heard the testimony about his angry outburst in the temple with the money changers. The disciples saw him calm the storm. They saw Jesus walk on the water. And of course, they witnessed the empty tomb. Talk about power. Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave. So of course they feared him. I mean, wouldn't you? Of course they feared God. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. So there was this reverence for God. But not only that, in the near term, everyone in the Jerusalem chapel had witnessed firsthand the mighty move of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost with the tongues and the credible move of the Holy Spirit. So of course they feared God. 2,000 years later, we've kind of created a kindler gentler, softer God. We've created God in the image of fallen, corrupt man. God is not to be feared, we're told. He, he likes you just the way you are. Sin? Huh. No such thing. God is just your best friend who accepts you as is. He would never judge you. Well, that's one of the reasons why I love studying the second coming like we're doing in the nine o'clock Hour because it reminds us that Jesus is not only our Savior who gives us the free gift of eternal life purchased with His own blood, but He's also the righteous judge. And He's going to come back and, and judge. So there is this both and. You know, yes, God is loving and merciful and gracious, and He's all of these things all the time. He's, his attributes are eternal, He's immutable, but He's also holy and just and righteous and I think we've lost that in the church today you know you sing some of these old hymns that Jeff and his team pick out each week and you know even 100 200 years ago 
it seems like there was more of a deep reverence for God, which of course just goes to show what we've been talking about in some of our recent series over the last couple of years, that things are getting worse and worse, and it's just ratcheting up. It's not that it's just been incrementally, little by little, over 2,000 years. The last 150 years have just seen a, a just an onslaught of attacks on, 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 on the church and on ultimately on God. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ, so Satan hates the church as much as he hates God. But let's take a closer look at this word fear here in Acts 2.43. It's the Greek word phobos. It's where we get our English cognate phobia. Uh, and it means, depending on the context, all words have to be defined in context. But you look this up in a lexicon and it's fear, reverence, awe, respect. Um, when we hear the word fear, of course, our natural response is we're referring to something that makes us afraid or terror or danger, right? So, you know, what are you afraid of, right? What are you afraid of? I did a little research and came up with the top 10 phobias right now. Uh, I don't know how they did this empirically, but I'll just assume that it's roughly an accurate description of the most common phobias of today. Let's see how many of these you, uh, you recognize. Number 10 We'll do like a top 10 list and we'll count down to number one, all right? Uh, number 10 is uh, trypophobia, or maybe it's trypophobia. Any guesses? Very good. I don't think there's any etymological connection there, but actually you're exactly right. It is the fear of holes. I'd never heard of it, but apparently it's the 10th most common fear. So trypophobia would be maybe the way you pronounce it. I don't know. I don't know. Number nine, aerophobia. Fear of flying. Yes. Uh, this one's moving up on the list now with all the mandates because of COVID. People, more and more people are getting aerophobia, I think. I, uh, for years when I was traveling, suffered from a similar phobia. It was called Unitophobia, fear of flying United Airlines. That was, that was my fear. Number eight is misophobia. Any guesses? Fear of germs. Fear of germs. Yeah, for some people, you wonder why it's not number one. I would have thought that would have been higher, too, but uh, it's number eight. Number seven, we're probably all familiar with claustrophobia. Fear of, fear. <laughs> no, Mike. It's not the fear of Santa Claus. That's uh, that's another one. I don't think it made the top ten. But uh, if you'd like to make an appointment for counseling, I can help you with that. Uh, no claustrophobia, of course. Fear of small places. So. We get many more people coming to Plum Creek. We're all going to get claustrophobia. We're going to have to push that back wall out. I think. What about astrophobia, number six all time? Astrophobia. No, that would be astrophobia. Yeah. No, astrophobia is the fear of thunder and lightning. This is actually number five, number six, rather. Number six. Fear of thunder and lightning. Anybody afraid of thunder and lightning? Our dogs are. Our dogs have astrophobia. Uh, what about uh, cynophobia? Speaking of dogs. The fear of dogs. Number five, most common fear, the fear of dogs. 
I have no idea why Fear of Cats didn't make the top ten list. Um, uh, I mean, I, uh, cats have nothing to fear, so maybe that's why they they uh, they have one. Cats have one item on their top ten fear list. It's number one, nothing. That, that's what they are afraid of. Um, number four is agoraphobia. Yeah, it's fear of going outside. Agora is the Greek word for community or town square. So agoraphobia is fear of open or crowded spaces. Right? Number three, acrophobia. What is that? Fear of heights. I think acrobats, right? Fear of heights. That's number three. So now we're getting into some that kind of ring true to me. I can see a lot of people have a fear of heights, right? Uh, number two, ophidiophobia. No. The fear of snakes. Anybody confess having ophidiophobia? A lot of you. Yeah. You should have raised your hand. You have a fear of snakes. I don't know. And then the number one allegedly fear that people suffer from is arachnophobia, which, of course, is the fear of spiders. The fear of spiders. Do you have that? You do, really? Wow. Does Anne? I hope she doesn't, because otherwise you have no one to call to come kill the spider. So. And one more. This is a new one that's rising on the list, especially over the last uh, two years uh, since 2020. Not quite in the top ten yet, but it's getting there, and that's democrophobia, the fear of Democrats. So anyway, um, anyway, Fabas. Sorry, I, I couldn't help myself. Uh, Fabas, uh, fear, reverence. It's used 47 times in the New Testament. And uh, fear, this word, certainly can have the connotation of terror, that you're afraid of something, as in these phobias that we've talked about. In the Old Testament, the same different word, but same concept. David put it this way, In God I have put my trust, I will not be afraid. In the context there, we know from the, the subscription of the text there that he's was when he was captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 21. And he says, I'm going to trust in God. I will not be afraid. I mean, certainly he had a lot to be afraid of. He was just captured by the enemy. Who knows what they're going to do? And in fact, he goes on to say, what can man do to me? But this idea of fear, of terror, of being afraid of danger or harm is nothing new. Uh, Aristotle, some 300 years before Christ, said, fear is pain arising from the anticipation of evil. I think that's a good summary of, of the kinds of fear that we tend to think of. Um, fear is pain arising from the anticipation of evil. And, you know, in that sense, we, we should all have a acknowledged, recognized, healthy fear of what we see happening all around us because as Proverbs 22, 3 says, we should be prepared when we see trouble coming. We see a lot happening geopolitically and in the world that sort of is setting the stage for the rise of the new world order. And so it's natural. But how, how do you deal with it? That's the question. For some people, it's para uh, paralyzing fear. Unlike David, they, they understand that fear is a reality, but rather than saying, I'm trusting God, what can man do to me? They just become crippled by fear. Sophocles put it this way, to him who is in fear, everything rustles. Everything rustles. You ever been at home alone and 
maybe you watched a movie or reading a thriller, a book that's a thriller, all of a sudden every creek, every wind outside, every tree branch grazing against the house, you know, you begin to think, oh, what is that? What is that? When we lived up in the mountains, one time our daughter was taking the dog, or actually going to get the dog in, we didn't have a fence, so she would be tied out. And well after dark, she went out to get the dog and bring her back in, and she heard a noise outside and just in the trees. And when we checked the game camera later, we discovered there was a mountain lion out in our property, you know, around that same time. To him who is in fear, everything rustles. The New Testament uses the word phobos in this sense of terror. For example, when the disciples saw him, Jesus, walking on the sea, they were troubled and said, it's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. I mean, that's legitimate fear. That's real fear. Here's this ghost, you think, walking on uh, the water. Or what about the guards at the tomb? When the tomb was empty after the angels came and rolled away the stone, they shook for fear. They were so afraid, right? They knew what was going to happen to them. But if we know the Lord, we're not supposed to have that kind of fear. Paul said, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And I love the way he couches this idea of not being afraid and connects it to God, our Heavenly Father. You know, if you've got kids, or maybe if you can think back to when you were a kid, you can all relate to the, you know, for example, the, the young child standing on the side of a pool, jumping in for the first time, and there's mom or dad, you know, in the water saying, it's okay, just jump, just jump. And the kid is just afraid. But then eventually they catch the eye, they, they give a trusting eye to the parent, and they jump in. And it's okay. And, of course, after that, they just jump in. You know, all over the place. You know, but that initial time of fear is when you need to catch the Father's eye and and recognize that we don't have a reason to be afraid. The Apostle John put it this way: "There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear." We were talking a moment ago about the old, the great old, you know, hymns of the faith and. I love this Martin Luther hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We've sung that in here before more than once. Yeah, I love this old hymn. And especially the third verse. Listen to what it says. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. So we don't have to have this kind of terror-filled fear of spiders or snakes or dogs or close spaces or political parties. <laughs> We're not supposed to have that kind of... But there is a healthy kind of fear that Scripture speaks about and that the early New Testament church in Acts chapter 2 experienced. And it's called the fear of God. In his letter to... The second letter to the Corinthians, Paul said... Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And you see in the New Testament a connection 
between our sanctification process, that's what he means by perfecting holiness. Sanctified just means set apart as holy. Uh, you see this connection between our sanctification process and fearing God. In Ephesians, Paul said, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. I think we're going to talk about unity as we continue through this look at the model church down the road, but one of the reasons the early church had such great fellowship and such great community like we've already talked about and as we're going to see had such great unity is they all shared a common quality of fearing God because they all had the common experience of the powerful working of God in their midst. In Psalm 36, again another Davidic psalm, uh, which Paul quotes later on in Romans chapter 3, David says, There is no fear of God before his eyes. Talking about the evildoers, the, 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 the wicked. Um, and, in, and again in Romans 3, Paul is describing the fallen nature of man in chapters 1 through 3, and he quotes David here. For evil people who don't know the Lord, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Where has all the fear gone? You know, why are there so many fools in the world? Because they don't fear God. And I believe that part of the Luciferian agenda of deception is to creep into the church and try to get churches downplaying this notion of fear of God. So that churches today are embracing all kinds of aberrant uh, views that are a fundamental attack on the image of God in man. Proverbs puts it this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice that carefully. It begins with the fear of the Lord. It's fundamental. When the Spirit of God convicts a lost person of sin, righteousness, and judgment and their need for a Savior, it's because they become to recognize they're a sinner, and the penalty for that sin is eternal separation from God in a literal place of torment called hell. That's fear. And you recognize, I need to do something about that. And only Jesus Christ can do something about that. I can't do it myself, so I'm going to trust in Him to forgive my sin and give me the free gift of eternal life. So it starts with the fear of the Lord, and, and then the whole Christian life is about the fear of the Lord. Reverence, respect, awe. I love this uh, story from Tony Evans. I've had the chance to hear him speak in person several times, and read a couple of his books. Uh, you know, he, he's a great man of God, and I really appreciate him. He doesn't always agree with me and Jesus on everything, but he's pretty close, you know. Uh, but he said this, reverence and fear of God is a starting place for wisdom. If a driver is going 80 miles an hour and notices a police car parked up ahead on the side of the road, they slow down. In fact, a whole series of things goes into motion. First, the driver's heart starts beating a little fast, then he eases down on the brake as he lifts his leg off the accelerator, being careful not to slam on the brake, uh, which is pretty much an admission of guilt, you know. Uh, and then uh, his eyes look down at the speedometer to ensure that the speed is beginning to lower. And then their eye, your eyes move to the rearview mirror as you look to see whether or not you've been caught. And so Tony Evans says, the policeman's presence has produced a healthy respect for the law. When an officer is present, 
Drivers adjust to the law because of the respect for the officer's authority. In other words, you don't want a $100 ticket or $150 ticket or whatever it might be. A driver might not like the authority. He might not want that authority. He might not even be rebellious. He just respects it. I mean, what would most people think about a person who sees a police car parked up ahead and goes, whoopee, and floors it and goes up to 90, you know? be absurd, right? They'd call him a fool. And that's what the Bible calls those who have the similar reaction to God. There's no fear of the Lord. There's no fear of the Lord. Jesus had this to say in Luke chapter 12, a passage you don't hear taught very often in this day of a kinder, gentler Jesus. But he said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I, I say to you, fear him. There is a type of fear that is valid in the life of a believer and an unbeliever. And that is this fear and respect and awe for God. And we need a healthy fear of the Lord in the church, a reverence and awe. Then fear came upon every soul, Luke tells us. Do we fear God? Do we respect Him as a church? You as an individual. The church is made up of individuals, right? Do you honor Him? Do you revere Him? The early church that had just witnessed the resurrection sure did. They had seen him work in the life and ministry uh, of his eternal son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They would seen him work on the day of Pentecost. So I think when you boil it down, there's a right kind of fear and there's a wrong kind of fear. We've not been given a spirit of fear. We're not supposed to fear in terms of being terrorized by anything because God is our Father. And what can man do to us? But then there is a fear that we are supposed to have, which is a healthy respect and reverence for God. And I thought this quote by Edward Weeks, who for years wrote for The Atlantic, he was a writer, columnist. He said, to live with fear and not be afraid is the final test of maturity. I don't know what he had in mind there by final test. Ultimately, our eternal destiny certainly isn't determined by whether we have the right kind of fear or not. It's based on whether you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But I think that first phrase kind of captures the essence of the biblical theology of fear. We are to live with fear, but we're not to be afraid. It's one of the paradoxes of Scripture. So there you go. Characteristics of the model church. Number seven is reverence. Reverence. And we're going to look at couple more next week but let's stop here for now what's the takeaway as i was reviewing all of these passages on fear and thinking about the utter lack of fear that seems to characterize most people in the world today of course that'll change in a heartbeat when christ comes back to tread the wine press of the wrath and fury of almighty god you better believe there'll be fear uh, we don't have to fear that because Jesus said, if you've trusted me, you, shall, you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. But as I was thinking about the utter lack of fear, I think the simplest way to say it is this. Fear God and nothing else.
What is it that cripples you? Give that to the Lord. Let go of it. Trust Him. Life is too short to be crippled and paralyzed by unhealthy fear. And I think the way you do that is by having the biblical kind of fear. Trusting in the Lord, reverencing Him, having an awe for Him, and recognizing that He's your God. You're part of His family. You're a child of the King. So why should you fear anything? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just this uh, brief but I think meaningful reminder from your word about fear and the example that the early church set of fearing you. Every soul feared you in that day. Help us to be the kind of believers and help Plum Creek to be the kind of church that has this healthy fear, recognizing that it's not, we're not here as an end unto ourselves, but we're here as a part of your plan. So Lord, we pray that these uh, words would just uh, pierce our hearts, encourage, convict, and reprove, and pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would bring them to our remembrance throughout the days and weeks to come as we think about uh, the passage we looked at today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That's awesome.